0: Hi, this is Aaron and I'm joined once again with Roger and welcome to the 5th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Order and chaos remain the key elements that influence a given society. When we think of order and chaos, it is very easy to think of one, namely order, being inherently good and chaos being an agent of evil. However, the notions of order and chaos are not new concepts. In the ancient religion of Zoroastrianism, the symbols of fire and water are used as symbols of purity, with fire representing light and wisdom. A paradox is formed as water, when introduced to fire, often extinguishes the flame, creating the perception that these two natural ingredients should not mix. If light represents chaos, which gives birth to new ideas, and water represents order, which extinguishes the fire when the chaos becomes too out of control, then perhaps these two forces are not as alien to one another as we might think. Zoroastrianism is perhaps also responsible for the birth of the philosophy of dualism, the idea that the universe is governed by opposing forces, male and female, light and darkness, order and chaos. Strangely, however, under dualism, neither one of these forces must triumph over the other for the creation of a just society to exist. It is believed that these two forces are continually at odds with one another for all eternity, and that remains the natural order of things. The symbol has most penetrated our society in the form of yin and yang, influenced under the religion of Taoism. The spiral of darkness and light represent the cosmic duality of the universe in terms of light and darkness, with some iterations of the symbol containing a small white dot on the black side and a small dark dot on the white side which can be interpreted that order can always be found in chaos and vice versa. Even in science, when we think of the universe, we think of darkness, dullness, and orderliness, until a burst of light known as the Big Bang occurred, which has given birth to planets as diverse and different as Pluto, Jupiter, and our beloved Earth. Although these concepts seem really abstract, I have the help of Roger here, who's gonna give us some real life examples as to what order and chaos look like.
1: Uh, Thanks, Aaron. So I think one of the easiest ways to understand this uh, duality of order and chaos is to kind of understand just our, our own limitations of perception. And naturally there's gotta be our categories of how we classify things seems to have arisen no, normally from more basic versions of that. And what I mean by that is that our, our categories tend to oftentimes mix and mend. And one of the most basic categories that we have is what is known and what is unknown. And one of the best ways to classify that is what is known is whenever you do something, you know what's going to happen next. In other words, predictable. Uh, A lot of times we actually conceptualize that as order, right? Um, You can think of, and pretty much anytime you use the word order or orderly is, it implies that there's some pattern that you recognize and that you can predict. And the exact opposite of that is chaos. And what chaos tends to normally represent is something that is completely unpredictable. Now, what's important here to note is that both chaos and order are to some extent a subjective classification right like the person that is classifying those is making the distinction of i do not know what that thing's going to do and it's chaotic and or or i do know i know what how that's going to play out so that's orderly it's it's everything's ordered the clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson kind of takes this and runs with it. His classification, his idea of this classification basically extends to the, to the point where those are the main categories. So since they are the primary categories, in other words, the categories that everything else kind of starts to break out of, that's for him, these are the archetypal categories of, of the human mind but they don't just contain chaos and order. They contain, you know, an amalgamation of a bunch of concepts all smashed into one or a complex, right? So it would be not just, not just that it's order and chaos, but that things that are orderly are all contained within that category and things that are chaotic are all contained within that category. And us as animals have kind of developed more of a, less of a description and more of an understanding of those things as personalities, as kind of like a human-like things or things that act in the same way a human would.
0: Uh, that's really interesting, Roger. So you're saying that this first manifests itself in individuals before larger society.
1: Right. Well, it manifests itself even before individuals. Like, for example, Carl Jung's idea of before humans were even alive, we, the animal versions of us or the, Prior versions of our evolution had a, a mythic a, a mythic symbols that symbolized certain things and rea- and acted within acted similar to personalities and it 's also what made us react emotionally to those personalities and one of the most basic ones, especially since you know from, a, from human perspective our reproduction requires the mating of a male and a female is male and female, that is the, the differentiation of the genders. And the idea is that how those in general would act and the fact that any successful iteration of an animal had both a, a father and a mother leads to the idea that chaos and order are also categorized within the father and the mother. And for example, for Peterson, borrowing from Jung takes this idea of chaos as the great mother and order as the great father. And that's also where you where, you know, Pearson had gotten in trouble a little bit for noting that in a lot of myths and symbols, chaos tends to be represented as the feminine and order tends to be represented as the masculine.
0: Yeah, as we all know, uh, females in our life that are extremely orderly um, and keep everything uh, very organized within their lives and run a very tight ship. And I certainly have a lot of friends in my life. And, and uh, especially if you have a lot of guys living together, their houses tend to fall apart and be really messy and sloppish. So it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that you know, uh, the female represents uh, chaos and the man and the males represent orally. Could you maybe expand yeah. a little bit about that?
1: Well, And exactly that's the, that generalization you just made is exactly the problem. As I said, and, you know, purposely, it's feminine and masculine. Mm. So it has nothing to do with the person themselves or whatever gender they identify with, or they, you know, whatever gender they embody It has much more to do with the group of quality of qualities that we associate to those genders at least traditionally or symbolically. Currently with our culture, all this is kind of starting to be questioned and you know pushed. And there's always been variety within different cultures of what is masculine versus feminine and things like that. Um, but it could be most easily summed up as the traits that you normally would expect from a father and the traits that you normally would expect from a mother. Kindness, caring, nurturing, um, and then we can get into it later, but also devouring Overburdening, uh, kind of to some extent, more feminine, which, you know, kind of with an over, you can overlay temperament as to women, you know, having a slight disposition to be more agreeable, having a slight disposition to be, to being, to having a higher uh, neuroticism in the personality traits, which would then explain why that would be, why that could be associated with the feminine, but not necessarily with females as a group, right? And on the other side, you have aggress- aggressiveness, uh, assertiveness, competitiveness um, from the masculine side, which then do you we think, oh go ahead
0: yeah. Do you think Roger maybe a way to make this a little bit more palpable in 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 twenty twenty is to perhaps say that if you have like a mother and father. It is possible that the father in that relationship represents the feminine embodiment. Like the father is the care, is the agreeable one or the softer one. And it, it could be possible that the mother then represents the masculine embodiment of it. It, it, might, it might be the case that most men tend to be masculine and most women tend to be uh, feminine. And, and that, of course, you know, makes sense. But I'm, I'm saying in our world, it could be that the father does have some feminine qualities and the, and the wife has some masculine qualities yeah, and they complement each other in that. Well,
1: we don't even have to get into the numbers game, right? Of like most or any. It's more a matter of how it's conceptualized. So the idea is a good one to think of is a good thing to think of is what is your father to you or your mother to you? And you can say, well, my mother's the thing that just gave birth to me. And it's like, okay, yeah, in a way that's that, that is one connection, but when they act as a father to you or towards you, what does that actually mean? Right? It seems that they're following a behavior and a tradition that they learned from their father, who learned it from their father, who learned it from their father, who learned it from their father. And therefore this uh, pattern of behavior, right? This pattern of how to act towards your child. And also if they didn't have a father, they learned it from other fathers as in like, what's the role of father quote Mm. unquote, right? Or mother, what, whenever you say someone says it's like, you're not a good mother. What does that mean? If they had a kid by definition, They are a good mother if all mother means is you gave birth to someone. But that's not what we normally are referring to. We're referring to a a set of qualities and behaviors that have been passed down from one generation to another generation to another generation. And that's more what we mean by the feminine and masculine traits. But those rules could um, be flipped.
0: Do you think it would be possible... For a father to pass down masculine traits to a daughter or a mother to pass down feminine traits to a son, We're, of course, yeah, okay, yeah, like again,
1: like these aren 't restrictive by any means right it 's not as though there 's even a normative quality to this it 's not like i 'm saying that anything should be this way, but we all seem to be walking around with these conceptualizations of a good father, a good mother, a bad father, a bad mother those in order to be able to even judge that it requires that you have some idea of what a good father and a good mother is. So then the next question is, well, where do those qualities come from? Where do those ideas uh, come from? Right. What, what's being defin- What are you even using to define that?
0: So these, you know, it's very interesting what you're saying. So these concepts of the good father and the good mother are essentially impressions that we have as a society And then it's up to the individual to embody each of these impressions. And they may embody these impressions to a varying degree. So you might have a young boy who embodies the father figure to like 60% or 70%. Like we could say Mm -hmm. 70% of what that young boy does represents the sculpture of a good father And, and, but, but it need not be that the entirety of his personality is encapsulated within that sculpture.
1: Yeah. Well, you can think of it this way. You can think of a little boy, right? That's just been born. What's the best way to make this boy flexible, adaptable, able to survive in whatever it is that reality is going to throw at him? Well, they need, they, you know, most boys are going to need two things. One, they're going to need something to aim at, right? Right and many boys but by no means most will likely choose a, ma- a masculine person that, and the only reason that's the case, is like, okay, you seem to be a lot like what I am, so I'm gonna, and you've made it this far, so I'm gonna try and do whatever it is you're doing. And you see children do this all the time. You also see it, you see them do this even whenever you know, you just take them to the movies. And this is one of the reasons why I do really think representation does matter because the closer they can identify to an ideal, the more they're gonna to try to embody that ideal. The next thing that happens is that father becomes the judge, right? The father tells you, your father, uh, the role of the father is to tell you, yeah, you're doing it correct, or no, you're not, or you're not doing it well enough here, or you're, fail- you're failing here, but you're doing well here. It's this shaping and, and cutting. However, that can always be super harsh, right? If you're just always tearing this kid down, they need to also be nurtured and have someone that they can, that can back them up. And that normally falls more on the mother whenever the father is too critical or, or just when life in general is too harsh and it's too hard to take down, you know, you might not want to go to the person that's always telling you you're doing things wrong or always telling you how to be better. You may want to go to someone who doesn't care about that and is just there to nurture you and can, can always catch you. Right. And always has your back.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, so connect, connecting this to the idea of zoroastrianism, if, if the father, let's say, is is burning like a really intense fire and he's being super hard on his kid, like the mother kind of could serve as the water that doesn't necessarily put the fire out. Like that fire mm. is super important. You need that to cook your meals. You need that to eat and keep warm. But the mother has the power to temper the flames just a tad in order to salvage the the self-esteem of the child would that would that be a good connection would you say
1: right right and what i do want to make clear here is that these roles i'm only pointing at them in their traditional sense like in a more modern sense you could have for example a gay couple where one partner is following the role of like the nurturer and the other the other partners following the role of the judge that's constantly pushing the kid up to become more competent to come better or a lot of times what you see is within single mothers it's a very difficult task but it's one that many have many women can admirably take on where they are both the person that is asking you to be better all the time and always improve and always demands for the best from you but then when you fail can catch you and be like all right look you tried you did your best come on you're okay you know and it's kind of having to switch between those two roles and it's like
0: it's crazy because you know the mother has to be the fire on tuesday but then she's the water on wednesday it's like it's very difficult to uh code switch like that i would imagine
1: Right, but but it's more of the idea that you have to both push your child to grow and understand that they are still a child, right? And it, and it's it's a, it's a always a difficult it's a difficult balancing act, even in the best of times, right? Even even in, and that, that's kind of the whole saying of like it takes a village to raise a child is because the child isn't just shaped by even if there's two parents in the household, it's shaped by everyone around them. But that that idea of the masculine and the feminine is more an identification of the the, the different duties that normally go into constructing some uh, constructing a, a person, right? The the goal setter that judges you and then the support that you have. But again, both of these are both of these to some extent are only half of the story. Because on one end, your father seems to be or like the masculine let's keep it more more inclusive to everybody the masculine role of an upbringing is to put you in a situation where you're tried where you have to grow put in a situation that you have to take things on so a lot of times in a traditional sense you always find the father pushing the kid and into the pool or putting them in situations where they have to face their fears or demanding they not not be weak or not slow down. Right. It's this idea like, no, 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 I'm sorry, but my job is to prepare you for the world and the world doesn't care about how many fears you have or how many feelings you have. Right. But at the same time, the, the feminine role is to, to reinforce this. Like, yeah, yeah. The world may not care, but we do like we care. Right. And those roles can be taken on and both are, necessary and vital for good de- for development right like you need to both be able to feel like you yourself are valued which is given by the feminine but also feel like you can always improve and take more things on to become better than what you currently are so you need the support and the constant push upward so and yeah, it, it's
0: and it's you know this uh, actually takes me back to the conversation that i had with claire last week and we had discussed that the World War II generation, when raising their kids, was way too brutal and way too harsh on their children. There's so many stories. Like I have my grandparents that told me stories of their parents coming home and in, in a their father coming home in a drunken stupor and beating the crap out of them and demanding that they do X, Y, and Z. And then the Boomer generation kind of rebelled against that and they became. Uh, super loose in their parenting and and gave like blue ribbons and, and participation trophies to everybody. So I I think that it it makes sense that both the mother and the father are working in conjunction with one another and not one of those forces is becoming too powerful over the other.
1: Yeah. Right. It's definitely a balance and, you know, many people or many different philosophies and theories have always conceptualized this dynamic as a as literally a balance right a, a, an equilibrium that whenever there is too much of one there's a compensation from you know from Jung's perspective he would say it's a compens it's a compensatory reaction you're compensating for the over for the excess or the neglect of one side with the other side uh and this as you know we can get into will doesn't just apply to us because the idea of the, these archetypes of this archetypal structure, which archetypes just means archaic types, types, things that have been around since before, you know, before we even really were aware of them, we're kind of sh- have always shaped us, but then if they shape us and that's kind of the foundation of how we see reality, they also shape our society, our behaviors and our beliefs, right? It kind of like scales up to everything else. And you, What's important to know is that when you're using chaos in order, naturally it's an oversimplification because you are simplifying it to the basic category. But we have very, very different reactions to, to, to those categories. And a really important thing to note um, that I think it's, it's vital is that most people, especially most Westerners, don't know what it's like to actually be in a state of chaos, especially if you've never left the country.
0: Right, right. I mean, there's a lot of uh, historical examples of this. And I I think that I I think the embodiment of of chaos would be like a state of of anarchy or, or maybe like a state of civil war, if you would. Like maybe we could say that the United States during the Civil War was as close to Anarchy as humanly possible. Like states thought that they could just leave the union, print out their own money, uh, different, uh, you, you know, so like that would be the closest we've probably got into chaos. And then fascism would probably be by extension, the closest we, we not maybe the United States, but other societies have gotten to orderliness and Typically with the rise of one, the other also becomes more powerful because if anyone knows anything about uh, the rise of like Italy and Germany, it was as a result of the Great Depression and it was as a result of those democratic uh, countries being unable to do, deal with hyperinflation. They weren't able to give people jobs anymore. They stopped being able to provide basic services. So you could say that the chaos of those poorly formed democratic countries then allowed order to kind of step in and, and, and right. serve a role.
1: Well, yeah. And before, before we even go into that, I do want to make sure that, that it's clear what I mean by chaos. As I mentioned earlier, chaos tends to be that there are different levels to, to the chaos. And what, what's really important for us to understand is that we need and actually thrive with chaos. It's a necessity for us. And there's, you can kind of see how these levels would manifest themselves because the, the first level is the benevolent feminine um, is normally how it's symbolized. And it's the chaos that we whenever we don't expect things but they aren't necessarily a threat, because then we really like those kind of things. We really like novelty without threat. But it's also not always the what what normally happens. In but like if you have, for example, the novelty without threat is what you feel whenever you you put on some pants and then you put your pocket in and you you know there's ten bucks in there. <laughs> right? And you're like, Oh, well, right, I mean- or you
0: come home from work and uh, your wife has like cooked this huge meal or something or you decide to take her out and it's like, Whoa, I, I didn't expect this but it-, it-, it kind of breaks your routine like if you come home from work every single day, and you know, eat the same thing like Oh, we always have lasagna on Wednesday, but then you come home and your wife has surprised you and you're going out to a French restaurant it's a pleasant surprise, but it does break the order of your having lasagna on Wednesday every day.
1: Right, right. It, 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 it's the world because, and that's why it's benevolent. It's the world is not acting in the way you want it to act. And actually it's good for you. And you're like, what? like wow, I didn't expect this. Right. But normally that's not what we always get. The next level is the malevolent feminine, which tends to be situations where we get frustrated or even a little bit scared. And that's situations where you have a plan of what's gonna happen, and then some anomalous event happens that makes you stop and reassess everything that's happening. And a lot of times that isn't good or that, I mean, it it is good or bad, but at the time you don't know, right? All, All of that happens is you see something that's anomalous and you don't know how to react. You don't know if it's good or bad. This is whenever you have a situation where something. A, a good example of this would be you. You have a. You're going to work, and you get in your car, and you try to turn on your car, and your car doesn't start. Your battery, and you know before. Let's say you don't know anything about your car, <laughs> anything about cars. You turn the key, and you just don't hear anything. You have no idea what that means, and at this point, all these plans that you had about like oh I'm going I'm working for- I'm going to work. I'm, you know, I'm working for a promotion, I have this work that I need to do today, all those plans
0: collapse. So unpleasant, un, it's like uncertainty, but in the unpleasant kind, in the unpleasant no, variety.
1: Well, not necessarily, because it, the, it's more uncertainty in the unknown variety. And that's what really categorizes chaos is that you don't know if it's good or bad you're kind of, you're, you're going to get frustrated and mad, but then at the same time, if you've ever had situations like this, which we almost all do, you also start to see on the bright side, you're like, well, I didn't want to do that work anyway. Well, maybe someone else will do it. And then I'll have to take care of it. And then I'll get back to work. And I, I would be love great. to take
0: a car ride you're, with you because like, you can make the <laughs> you can right, bring right. That positivity to the, the car not starting.
1: It's the idea of like, you start to, you have to reassess your map of the world. Right. And then the last one isn't feminine at all it's true unknown which is what true chaos is and that's the idea that when you hit that what you're looking at is actually the closest you can get to real reality because real reality is a mess but we create a concept to simplify the world so that we can act in it and like for example that's also oftentimes embodied as the dragon of chaos and for, because the, what's a dragon? Well, a dragon's basically just everything that humans are, would be naturally scared of. We, we, we were always attacked by, in our, through our evolution, we were attacked by alligators, snakes, uh, predatory cats, fire, and like swooping birds of prey. So it's like, okay, well, what's a dragon? A giant flying snake with the mouth of an alligator or the claws of a lion that can breathe fire and, you know, can devour us in one bite. It's like, okay, so all the scary things that we evolved to avoid all in one thing as the embodiment of the complete unknown. Let, Why? Let me ask you like, this question. There could be that.
0: Let me ask you uh, this question. So let's just say we, we take our Neolithic ancestors and the dragon of chaos comes in the incarnation by a hungry pack of wolves. You were walking mm-hmm. down the normal path that you and your tribe have always gone down and then you're ambushed by hungry wolves that come after you, from the perspective of the hungry wolves, they are acting in an ordered way. Like they're very hungry and they've encircled your tribe and they're trying to eat them. So you could say that um, you, even though it's chaos for you from, from the wolf's perspective or from nature's perspective, that's order. Like the, the wolf yeah. is a predator and it's, it's, it's enacting order by eating a, a weaker species in itself.
1: Well, it wouldn't necessarily be older, Like presuming that they would have, you know, similar psychological conceptualization, <laughs> right? Like, which is a huge presumption, but it, you know, doesn't necessarily fall apart because we do understand, you know, canines. That what they've experienced if they're walking and they happen to stumble upon us. Let's say they're not just following that 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 uh group. They just experience benevolent chaos. Like they're like wow we were just walking and lord and behold there's there's a perfect meal right in front of us of helpless little humans that we can eat right like it's it's like they had a map of their territory it's like their little pack of like what they protect and patrol and then just happened to run into these things It's like yo we could we could eat these people and we'd all be full and that's probably going to be a good thing so let's do it and then from our perspective it's like oh we thought that this was a place where we were safe and we were wrong. Our map of the surrounding area was wrong. We didn't account for something that was relevant.
0: What about the biologists who might come into the picture and say, well, wait a minute. Even though all of these encounters between the wolf and the humans are completely random, they're following the higher order of the food chain. So the food chain is like the highest order of things that uh, stronger predators eat, weaker predators, even if these individual daily encounters are random.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I don't think there's any problem to that. If anything, I would say that like the reason that that's the case is because of the structure of how thing, the, the, the thing that makes one stronger or one weaker is because of how they function, like the, the animals programming. For example, uh, if you put a naked human against a wolf, the naked human probably won't fare very well. Right. Uh, but if you put a modern day human with even with some decent survival, survival skills, they have a pretty decent chance of surviving that situation. Why? It's like, well, it's the programming that they're already carrying in and the conceptualizations of the surrounding areas in their environment. Like if, if a human is trained well enough, they can be like, okay, well, I know that these things that I, you know, that I call trees, I can also make something else out of them. I can make them sharp pointy sticks that I can then use to help me protect against possible predators that I already know naturally. Like, exist and might want to hurt me and it's it's that's the idea of the hero so real quick getting into just that if we have two categories of like things we don't know things we do know in the in the realm of things that we do know the reason we know it is because it's predictable because we know how things will act and how things will interact well then the next step from there is being able to go out into the chaos, into the unknown, and expand that domain. And this is where I would say that most people haven't actually been. I have only experienced it a little bit and it's always a horrifying situation. Um,
0: I I, I use the the example, uh, I think with Claire last week, that this idea is is if you are an early hunting gathering society and find food, in a predictable spot, like, you know, there's always wild buffalo past the you know, the, the tree on the left hand side of the cliff. And then suddenly, there's no more buffalo, you're forced to then migrate somewhere else. And that's mm-hmm. kind of risking uncertainty and kind of jumping into the unknown, because you may head down south, and there might be more plentiful food, and you'll have, uh, I guess, benevolent, uh, chaos, benevolent chaos down there if you find, oh, wow, there's a lot more food than there ever was in our old spot. Or you might walk into male- malevolent chaos and find that there's zero food down there and your whole tribe starves.
1: Yeah, and then that's the most important realization that humans have consciously. Because the idea that's like, look, what where should we be scared of? What should we be scared of? Well, the unknown. Why? Because because we have no idea what that could be, right? It could literally be anything we even we couldn't even fantasize about what's out there, because we just don't have the information. So then the next question then becomes like, okay, where is all the things that could make things better? Well, if the unknown contains everything that like could contain anything, well, then that means it could contain anything that's bad, and could contain anything that's good. So therefore, everything that's that could possibly help us, that isn't within our known territory, is inside the chaos, is inside the unknown domain.
0: Now, it's important to point something out here that in order, I I would say for most people, for most people, they're not going to walk into chaos until order has failed them in some way. So for our early nomadic uh, hunters, it's only when the food source is already gone from their current environment that they plunge into chaos. And if you think of this in, in terms of like governments, if the government is doing an excellent job and there's high levels of orderliness and then not just orderliness, but fair and just orderliness, then there's no reason to have a civil war. There's no reason to trust an anarchist. There's no reason to do any of these things when the current order is serving its its intended purpose.
1: Uh, right, and then th- the important thing to note is the idea of the hero functions in that exact same way, right? Like almost every idea for like, for example, the Joseph Campbell's idea of the, the hero's journey kind of encapsulates this. There's always a call to adventure. It's the call to adventure is essentially chaos announcing itself as, Hey, here's an opportunity for something or I, or something that needs to be done. But
0: I would say that the call uh, for adventure is usually a need like you have to satisfy something that's failing you currently like if you're living like I think of like the California gold rush for example like there weren't enough opportunities on the east coast and there was this this desire and this need to to fulfill your ambitions by heading out west if I if I personally was if all my needs were being met and I was very satisfied I don't know if the, the the desire to embark upon adventure is as a strong
1: well yeah that's what i was trying to get at was the idea that that when the call to adventure first happens one of the common tropes is the hero refuses
0: ah right the okay, hero yeah. decides
1: so like you can think of bilbo baggins right when they show up and they're like hey you want to go take this ring and he's like no why why <laughs> would i bother like why would i want like this every, every, i'm chilling here drinking and smoking all day why do i want to do this right like there's no there's no reason to do this, right, it's this yeah. but, but it's, it's, what's really important to note here is that this is basically when chaos happens, when the chaos breaks out, almost a lot of times the hero kind of already knows what they need to do because they've already refused the call. So it's the idea of like, for example, like let's, let's take the coronavirus. We already knew why a lot of things failed. Why? Well, because we decided not to do them when we, when we were asked to. It's like, so we had the call to adventure. Hey, man, there may be a pandemic. We should really prepare for this very unfortunate and horrifying adventure. And we decide, no, we don't need that. We don't need that right now.
0: Do you think it's fear of the unknown that, that makes the protagonist initially decline the call to adventure? Like,
1: it, lack of necessity.
0: Lack of necessity. Okay. okay. Right. Like, it's,
1: it's exactly your point, right? It's like, if I don't need to do this yeah, yeah. It's nice to know that it's there, but like, I don't, I don't need to do this. Everything's fine right now.
0: Now there's also this, when I say fear, it's like if going back to our nomadic ancestors for a second, let's just say there is like, you're not at zero Buffalo, but let's say there's one Buffalo every three days. So you're, you, you have like, like you, you have a necessity to get more Buffalo, but you have enough that you're not going to starve. Is there perhaps that like fear of like, well, I'll take one buffalo every three days rather than having, then risking the uncertainty and then ending up with zero buffaloes.
1: Right, right. And that circular map works so well is all you have to think about is all it takes is for a hero to say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do it. Now, every single human has a different threshold for when that happens. But the only adventures that happen are because at some point that threshold was crossed, right? So if that threshold's never crossed, right? If we never get there, well, then there's just no adventure. So there's no story to tell. But every single story we tell, the reason we care about it is because it's a behavior pattern of how that threshold had to get crossed where the hero had to do something.
0: And death, death is usually the catalyst. Like the the protagonist's loved one gets kidnapped or killed So so
1: something goes wrong so badly that that the hero has to act. And then when they have to act, it's not as very rarely do you normally see the story narrative go, something horrible just randomly happened and the hero has no idea what to do. So he just kind of wanders around trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. And then, I don't know, somehow eventually he figures it out. It's almost always he already knows what he's supposed to do. And he's like, ah, uh, not now, or maybe, or I'll think about it, or I'm too old, or I'm retired, or, uh, you know, like uh, all the different this narrative ankle pain, This ankle pain right, Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm three days from retirement, you know, like all the classic, all the classic reasons why the adventures turn turned down. But then there's a catalyst that pushes them to be like, no, this is necessary. You have to go out into the chaos. It's like, if you don't, things will only get worse. And that's the idea that things will only get worse. So then that pushes the hero to go from order, from the known, to chaos. And that's where you get all these adventures and all these other tropes that get hit on. But back to bring, to bring it back to why all this matters is, this is kind of how we always conceptualize the world. And especially with the Dragon of Chaos, which I think a good example would be, there's a couple um, that come to mind. One would be when the Twin Towers fell. Sure. Because when we all sat there and watched that happen, the issue wasn't, oh wow, two plane, a couple of planes crashed into the World Trade Center and they collapsed. Most people weren't just thinking that, right? That wasn't the processing. Most of us were, Jesus, are we at a war? Who did this? What's going to happen next? What does this mean? What were those buildings important? How many people died? Who died? Right. So all these, all these different structures, and the reason we were so scared and fearful was. When that happened, and it was something that no one, none of us expected, we were all trying to figure out well, what does this actually mean? Not just for, because none of us were just thinking like, oh, well, you know, the skyline for New York's going to look different. Like, no, we were just like, oh, my God, I have no idea what this means. Because those two towers that just fell are interconnected with everything in our lives. They're interconnected with our government and its military action, with our policies, with, you know, how we see each other right? There's this huge spike in racism that like against Middle Eastern and literally anyone from the Middle East, even if they had nothing, that's like no even close association. And similar, for example, when Trump got elected, because it was an unexpected win more than anything about political. It was just so unexpected that so many people were just like, whoa, 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 I have no idea what this means. It's not just, oh, you know, like this country had a, transition of power of some, you know, underdog leader that no one expected. No, it's like, well, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the world? What does this mean for our politics? What does this mean for our laws? What does this mean for, you know, our, our international standing in the world? What does this mean for our geopolitics? Like everything is now in question again.
0: With the, with the instance of, let's say, the Twin Towers, like you said that in the hero's journey, the hero is always asked beforehand, hey, you got to come on this. And then he says, my ankle hurts and I can't do it. With the Twin Towers, I don't know if there was necessarily a, like we knew terrorism existed in the Middle East, but there wasn't necessarily this call to action prior to the catalyst. So in in this case, the hero is taken aback and doesn't know what to do for maybe a few days or a few months and then years even potentially. Well, I would
1: say uh, there's been some documentation that especially within the u.s intelligence that we were very aware we were quite aware that there was a plot to do something with planes right so like it wasn't completely ignored it's just depending on who you're calling as the hero like the average american person yeah sure but we also were never really taking seriously most of our politics before that i would say that 9-11 really changes how americans perceive politics because it it's the first time you know, coming out of the '90s decade, that politics actually really matters, and that like it really makes the news most of the time. It was kind of something in the background through like Bill Clinton and early Bush years, right? It's just like not too many people are invested. And then suddenly, along with technology and all these other things, it starts to change. And you know, 24/7 news, um, our perception of politics and its importance in our life really changes. But yeah, I, like I, I would say for them, no. But you could definitely make the case, for example, that for Bush. He had gotten, like, warnings in advance. Yeah, at at, at least a warning that's like, "Hey, this might happen. This could happen, and we should really prepare for that." Right, and and like that's kind of always the point. Um, I remember when it happened, I was in seventh grade, I think, and my social studies teacher, who normally just taught Kansas social studies, um, and it was normally a very boring class. He actually. Like that, to me, is what like made me have so much respect for him because he, he's like, look, we're not doing class today. He turned on the news, and then he said, these are the people that are most likely responsible. And he listed four different groups, Al-Qaeda, the PLO. And he like started telling us about each one of them in like current modern-day politics. And I, it was the most interesting class I've ever had. Right? So Where that, like-
0: that history teacher was more ready to embark upon the hero's journey than our, our president, in, in a sense, because he, he kind of knew – the, the The background of who would be responsible before that of the mainstream Americans, one thing I also want to like that may complicate this even further if you 're like let 's say a president let 's say you have like a thousand threats that are landing on your desk like you have like a because in fairness coronavirus. Could have come out in two thousand and one like like it, it didn't like it didn't it didn 't just happen in like oh it 's two thousand and eighteen you better take right. care of this well, so i 'm like if're how do you know as a hero what is the most important threat
1: well you don right? <laughs> like 't i mean that, that's exactly that 's exactly the point you can 't you can never prepare for these things because like you said there 's a million different variables it 's like should we prepare should we be taking on global warming, the possibility of a pandemic, the possibility of nuclear war, the possibility of an asteroid hitting us, the possibility of aliens coming in and killing us, the possibility, <laughs> you know, like you could just do an infinite amount of these threats. And it's like, and they're all possible, you know, some more probable than others naturally, but like, they're all possible. How and what are you supposed to take on? And that's kind of falls back into that hero's journey. It's like, there's going to be a call to adventure. But Um, you have to account for so many other threats that eventually the ones you didn't take care of are eventually that, that chicken's going to come home to roost. The New Orleans, right? Uh, All this corruption and everything of taking over the levees. And it's like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, nothing's gone bad yet. Nothing's gone bad yet. Nothing's gone bad yet. And then it's like, well, sure. Nothing has until it does. Right. And then at that point you have a situation you have to deal with.
0: So I feel like chaos exists in two realms. It exists first in the abstract realm, like it's like this could happen, this could happen, like uh, you know maybe in a year that will happen, maybe in ten years that will happen. But then something happens, and then suddenly the abstract chaos in your mind becomes like a real chaos that you must deal with.
1: Right. And well, it's it's you can think of chaos as we're using it as how do you conceptualize the things whenever you don't know what you're looking for, whenever something happens that you couldn't imagine was happening. Um, I, I think I might've mentioned this story before, but um, somewhat recently there was a shooting with eight people shot right next to my house. And for me, how I was conceptualizing my neighborhood and DC and every, like, everything around me, I was like, oh, this place is safe. It's normally reasonable. There's no. I'm never scared, right? I'm never scared. I'm sitting in my own living room. And I keep hearing, like, here's a great example. I first moved in right after the George Floyd protests, there was a lot of uh, fireworks that were being set off.
0: Yeah, same here in New York.
1: Right. So you would randomly hear at night these huge blasts. And I was like, was that a gunshot? What's going on? And like, for a while, I'd be, I'd stop, I'd freeze. And I'd be like, what's going on? A new unexpected noise just happened. What is that? And then like go and explore. And then eventually I was like, okay, I think those are just fireworks. And slowly like I acclimate and I'm okay again. And then later I hear this massive like pow, pow, pow. And I was like, oh, what is that? That doesn't sound like a firework anymore. It's another novel sound. And then I find out it's like, oh, they're making, doing construction across the street. And then one day I'm studying and then I hear a very rhythmic loud noise. And at that point I don't even react. I just keep writing. And eventually it doesn't stop and it starts to actually catch my attention. And it's like, okay, that's not a sound that I'm used to hearing. And within this point, I'm still in a state of order, right? Like I still believe I understand my surroundings. And I'm like, well, it's not a firework because it's too loud and it's too strong. It doesn't sound like construction. And I look out the window and as Mm -hmm. soon as I look out the window, I see people sprinting in a way that's like they're horrified sprinting. And at that point, I'm no longer in order. I no longer know where I'm at. I no longer know if I'm safe. I no longer know what's happening. I panic. I stand up, immediately run into my room, grab my girlfriend, put her on the ground, and jump on top of her. And I can still hear, because I immediately realize I'm like, oh, those are bullets. Like, that's someone shooting a lot. And it's really, really close. So after that, though, and here's the important part. I was scared to go out to my living room. My living room was no longer a known domain. It was no longer an orderly domain. It was a realm of chaos. And the idea that if I walk out there, am I going to catch another stray? Am I going to get a bullet there? Right? So now, like similar to a cat or anything else that you scare, like slowly I'm peeking in, (laughs) crawling very, very slowly to the window, and then looking out the window like with cover, right? Right. In the same way an animal would do it, because that's how we conceptualize the realms. It's like known territory, unknown territory. If there's something that's unknown, well, what is it? It's like, I don't know. It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, well, panic, prepare for everything.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's amazing that a known space can become the unknown. You know, one of the things that always I find interesting is if you've ever had like a mouse in your apartment, right. now when a mouse is in a cage, I'm actually not frightened at all. I'm like, oh, look how cute that is. And I look at it, I could pick it up, I could touch it. But a wild mouse, that could just, like, it does, the mouse itself doesn't scare you. But the idea that it could just pop out and scurry over your feet at some random moment, like you're getting milk at, at night, that's the scary part, is because the mouse has control in the sense that, like, it has brought the unknown to your known space and kind of right. has ruined that for you. Whereas the mouse itself in a cage is is orderly and known and I can hold it. And when I don't want to feel, I don't feel like holding it anymore. I put it back.
1: Right. And, and the, like, the good example for that would be, there'd be a difference between you having a pet mouse that you just let alone, let run around. And then you having an unexpected mouse. Cause it's the fact that he, the fact that in your conceptualization of your place, <laughs> that mice are not supposed to be here. So what is that mice doing there? It's like the fact that that thing exists, means your conception of where you are is wrong at some level and you don't know where. Right. And that, that's what causes us to actually be scared. And like, for me, when I heard the gunshots, it was like, Oh, I messed up. There was some sort of information that likely I just skimmed over that was actually really relevant to predicting the situation, and now I need to go find where that was. Right. right, like what part didn't I account for that led me to be so wrong right now? Because right now I'm in the middle of like a shootout, and I have no idea what the hell, how the hell I ended up here.
0: I want to transition a little bit because we've spoken about um, chaos in 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 like the negative, like in the in the Twin mm-hmm. Towers, gunfire, and mice in your apartment. How is chaos, though, also an agent of change? Like, I want to speak about, like, how with these events, this 9-11 and the gunshots, how how can those things lead us to perhaps a a better change?
1: Right, so, I mean, we could take even just those situations or any others, but...
0: Any situation, yeah.
1: Right, the, the, the the thing about chaos is, and the dragon of chaos, for example, the most peculiar thing is it's a dragon that can eat you and kill anything that also seems to almost always cover like in our stories and myth always seems to also protect something we value so either like a virgin maiden or in other words you know in a more symbolic sense taking on that threat would make you more attractive to the to the opposite sex or gold which symbolically would be resources and wealth of some sort right or uh, like uh, I think Joseph Campbell calls it the boon, which is something of value to you it's always contained there, so then, for example, uh, I'm trying to think of a, of a good example that we use well
0: I'll use like you I can speak to the mice and let's say the gunfire. I'm not going to touch nine eleven I think that's <laughs> it's really complicated, but well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- yeah, thinking about so, so thinking about the mice example, if your apartment is infested with mice, the order that you could take to confront the dragon of chaos and the incarnation of a mouse would be moving your stove and being like, aha, there's a huge hole over here. I'm going to put some of that foamy stuff and that's going to prevent the mice from roaming free. And now you've yeah. kind of prevented critters from from coming into your house. In the example of, let's say, the gunfire that you experienced, perhaps that will be a wake-up call to some local politician and new laws will be enacted and we'll have reforms in our society that create a much more just society and maybe there's less poverty or or whatever it is that caused that gunfire to happen, that chaos might spark some order that can bring us to a, a, a better tomorrow, so to speak.
1: I do want to make the distinction between the dragon and chaos and just chaos, like malevolent, uh, feminine which would be more of like the the mice or something or like something that you don't expect and you're just like what the like now you're like okay now I need to figure out how the hell I ended up here like you take a test so here here's like the the, the, the different levels you take the MCAT and you guess on a lot of questions you didn't know and you get them right you're like whoa okay you know <laughs> benevolent chaos let's you same situation only you get a lot lower than you thought you would get you get quite quite low right and you're like whoa okay i i guess i i need to reassess you know how i'm studying or what's going on and then you take it and you just completely bomb it you bomb it to the point where now it's like well should i even wait so like if i can't even pass this should i even be should i even be trying to do this career am i smart enough to do this career could i if i can't even get the entrance exam done why what makes me think you know so like the idea is at what level does it make you reassess your map like a mouse comes in right you're like okay i need to reassess this category of where i live and how i'm going to deal with this and the dragon of chaos is more you need to reassess everything like you need to go from step down to step down to step down until you find this out because if you don't like it's it's quite, it, the, the stakes are so high that you don't even know how to deal with that, right?
0: Right. Because, I mean, with, even with one, like, I, even with, like, the case of the benevolent unknown mouse, that mouse could start procreating, and you could get right. a really serious infestation. And if, like, if you don't address that small little thing, it could spiral out of control eventually and become a true, a true vicious dragon of chaos. hmm
1: Yeah. And well, it, it, again, like the dragon of chaos is that it doesn't just challenge your local conceptualization, but all your conceptualization, like for me, uh, something that this showed me was that I'm the type of person that will jump on top of my girlfriend when bullets are flying. Like (laughs) I, like, I didn't think I was that guy. Right. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's, that's actually kind of like, it was scary, but like, I, okay. Like I know, I at least know at least that about myself that I was willing to do that. Right. So, but it doesn't just change. It's like, Oh, well I live in a bad neighborhood. Right. It changed. Like it changes. Where am I living? What am I doing? Why am I still in DC? What am I even doing here? What would all this be worth if I just got you know, a stray bullet anyway? Like, you know, it, it changes several things that you already believe in the world and challenges that that's what dragon of the Chao- the dragon of chaos is and then just interactions with chaos or situations of like Peterson would call it a journey to the, un- to the underground, to the underworld. And it's the idea of like, you have to go figure out why you believe the things you believe and double check your work essentially.
0: I like what you said about like, so the dragon of chaos can also prevent stagnation from happening because when those stray bullets came, I'm not saying your life was stagnating, But you really reevaluated your purpose being like, man, I really need to double down on what I'm doing here because my life could end at any given point or, you know, because like it's the dragon of chaos set, you know, basically tells you, hey, there's no guarantee that you're going to live to be 85 years old. You don't have all that much time. You need to act with purpose and you need to act a lot quicker.
1: Right. It's, it's a full demonstration of reality. And like the reality that we either simplify or gloss over is just comes out into your life unexpectedly and you don't really quite know what to do about it. Right. But the benevolent side of all this, like you mentioned is like, it does allow you to take those things on. Uh, But like the dragon of chaos tends to normally be when something's been left alone for too long. Right. Like for example, that situation is like the fact that that happened in a place where there was police all the time and all this stuff like, it means there's a lot of background there that I probably will never know, right? But like the fact that it happened at all means there's a lot of failures in policing, a lot of failures in policy, a lot of failures in economic opportunity, a lot of failure, you know, like it's, it, it's, it's a symptom of the entire system starting to fail in some way or another. And the more we don't address that, if you, anything, you could say you could see that as the call to adventure,
0: right? right? You know, I, I'm actually even like rethinking some of my original ideas on this issue. So, if you have a very fierce dragon of chaos do you double down on your orderliness and then that might lead to an escalation of the chaos? Like, I, I'm wondering even like, what's the right way of going about this? Cause it, you know, it, it seems like the natural thing to do is, Oh, uh, stray bullets. We need to double down on the police presence in this area. And, basically have greater order in response to the greater level of chaos. I don't even know now if that's like the right way to go about this.
1: Right. And well, the, the issue with those, with the problem is the solution, if the solution was already easy, there would never have been a problem, right? Like if the solution had already been obvious and available, like we would have just done that. It normally tends to be extremely complex situations and the bigger the situation, the bigger the bigger the dragon the bigger the situation is which with more requires more nuance and more complexity so a lot of times you want to start with you don't want to straight straight up just go and try to take on the dragon when you barely can manage your own chaos personally right like yeah. i shouldn't i shouldn't go and presume that i can then fix all crime in dc if you know from pearson's perspective it's like if you can't even keep your room clean why would you assume that you're responsible, smart, clever enough to be able to solve way bigger problems than something that simple, right? It's like get, get all that stuff fixed first and then slowly start to build that confidence.
0: One idea that I think also comes from this is that order, like to bring back order, you don't have to directly slay the dragon. Like we have this image in our minds of like the knight and the knight alone with a shield slaying the dragon while the dragon and the shield is somehow magically strong enough to uh, protect you from fire which i don't think under like physics and science that would really hold up but perhaps in in some other kind of uh, myths and fables we have you have a protagonist who's really intelligent and can outsmart the dragon and that's how he kills the dragon by like not directly confronting that dragon but figuring out oh the dragon 's weakness is his tail or some some other kind of like nuance to, to well, destroy it it doesn 't have to be like a, a direct confrontation with it
1: well it, it normally it normally is for the reason that you shouldn 't more for the reason that the behavior that 's being demonstrated is that you shouldn 't run away from it uh, like I really like Jordan Peterson because he talks about because uh, he 's a youngian and he likes dreams and things like that but i uh, he talks about a dream that he has with it that his little nephew has. And he points out like, yeah, his parents were kind of fighting, having some issues. And he was also about to go into school and he kept playing as a knight. He had this little costume and play as a knight. And he has this dream where there's this giant monster, little monsters that are pecking him to death. And there's a bunch of them. And he, no matter how many kills more come and keep getting him. And, you know, it's really disturbing him when he's sleeping and then, and then, Peterson asked him, like, well, is there anything? It's like, well, what else? And He's like, oh, also, there's this giant dragon at the very back that's just like pushing smoke out of its mouth. And every time it pushes smoke, more of these little monsters come. You know? right. And the idea is like in that dream, what's being represented in that dream is exactly that. The dragon of chaos, in, in other words, chaos incarnate, is producing more and more of these little problems. And all these problems, no matter how many problems you solve and take out, more problems are going to keep coming at you. And, you know, it's really stressing them out. And then Peterson asks, asks him, it's like, was there anything you could do about it? And then this is, this was like a Freudian move because Freud believed that certain issues, you should allow them to, to go fully go through and think through their fantasies, no matter how. Crazy they are. Sure. And and this fits perfectly to a Jungian archetypal view because then his nephew responds, like, oh, I could get my dad, which first and foremost, getting your dad to back you up, it's like the thing that has taught you and trained you to be your backup. It's like, yeah, good start. Well, it's like we stop killing the monsters, we go straight for the dragon. And then go into the dragon, I'll go straight into the firebox where the fire comes, stab it. Cut a shield out of it, and it'll protect me.
0: Right, one hundred percent get that. In the case of let's say gang violence or something like that, and let let's say that represents the dragon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Directly slaying that dragon need not necessarily be an increase in police or in orderliness. Like that well, might that, that might because be like, that
1: would be that would be slaying all the little
0: problems. Yes, that exactly. Causes, that's right? that's 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 slaying the little flames on the side. Like okay we rounded up these gang members and we put them in jail. Great. You did a great job cleaning up the little flames, but then actually slaying the dragon is addressing the needs of like what a community needs or, or perhaps even if it, it, I'm not saying that it's completely like a leftist solution where it's, oh, social, social money, 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 social programs. It could also be like uh, addressing a moral failure that a community is having. So it could be a combination of both those things. And that is what's actually slaying the dragon.
1: Right. And I mean, it's also this different ideas of, cause yeah, it's very hard for us to not think in a capitalist structure, right? So then, which has advantages and its disadvantages. One of its disadvantages is that we then presume that all the things that are guaranteed within a capitalist structure should just be car- guaranteed. And therefore, it's like, well, if we wanted to keep things the way we they are, how could we fix these problems at their core? And it's mm. like, well, you know, it's like maybe that might be one of the issues. That's definitely the left wing's point, right? It's like, no, no, it's the system itself that is perpetuating and causing these things. And, you know, a different um, another way to take it on is be like, okay, well, within this system, because a lot of people do seem to like this system, ha- is there a different way that we could at least mediate these problems right at least manage these problems but yeah like you could go it's the difference between putting the limits and trying to stop all the all the symptoms and going for the cause now what exactly is the cause that's where you know, always gets messy politically.
0: Right. I mean, it, it could be a combination of like, okay, we need better education, better infrastructure. And at the same time, from like uh, the capitalist perspective, we need more investment for jobs. Like, I, I guarantee you, like, if those gang members or whoever it is that Uh, fired those stray bullets if they had like jobs to go to they wouldn't necessarily have the time to kind of get into these like feuds and all this other stuff so like it could be like a a combination of both of those solutions that actually ends up killing the dragon
1: yeah possibly i I guess for me for me one of the bigger ways to take this on and this is kind of the whole point of these archetypes is because i would say that for 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 example the people that did shoot things out they're still playing the exact same myth. They're playing the hero myth, right? It just happens that their dragons, or like their enemy, their monster that also holds value happens to be a competitive gang that's also selling the same drug they are, right? It's like, if we take them on head on and we're brave about it, we end up getting more of what we want. And it's like, yeah, like you're not wrong. It's like, but that also is detrimental to the rest of us. So how can we make make it into a different game where that's not the case? But going back to why we're bringing this up, the idea is more that this is just how we perceive the world, right? We have a domain of order, the known. We have to go by necessity to solve any problem we have into the unknown. As we go into the unknown, we acquire knowledge, a boon, something of value. And as, because we do that, we attain things that make us more powerful. Like in the story with Jordan Peterson's nephew, he attains a shield that now allows him to be fireproof. And this is also why so many kids these days are obsessed with video games and not just kids. Like I'm obsessed with video games, right? Like, but, but like the reason it's so appealing, especially to men, but also to women is because that's exactly what you're playing into. You go into a realm where you don't know what to expect. Most people don't like to play games they already can beat. it's like, it's already, once you beat it, it's already easy. Yeah, you, right. You've already mastered the skill, right? <laughs> right. It's like, but each time you go in, you get points. Well, why, why get points? It's like, well, because each time you go in, you're getting stronger, you're getting better. I, I think of like one of my favorite old school games was Mega Man. And one of the reasons it was so yeah. cool was every time you would beat the boss, you would get its power. Like like every power, every little boss would have a certain special ability in the game that only that boss had. And if you could defeat that boss, then you attained what it had and it internalized it into you. And you now had that ability.
0: So these agents of chaos have something that they could teach us in, in, in some regard. Like there's some, there's some, like if not chaos if, stuff. yeah, yeah. Right. Like maybe not the exact agent, but like the experience of dealing with chaos teaches you like the kid, like you learned just, you learned that you will jump on your girlfriend and protect her that's the power and that's the special ability that you got like mega man mm-hmm. being able to jump on your girlfriend and like protect protect another human being which is and the fact that you put yourself on top taught you the valuable lesson that i'm willing to kind of sacrifice myself in a way to save another
1: yeah well like at least it taught me that like at least in that situation i didn't just run scared
0: right right but that i was
1: able to be like okay this might be it but we gotta do what we gotta do here right and like that was a surprise to me like i've had you have to remember the conceptualization of chaos is the unknown so when you encounter the unknown it's gonna become known by definition right when you encounter something you don't know well once you encounter it it's now starting to become known and the more you interact with it the more you know so you're always, it's always gonna be an improvement. And the idea, the idea of, from, hum, from a human standpoint that we kind of seems to have been internalized to our motivation is the more you know, and the braver you are in taking on the things you don't know, the better you'll become.
0: Right. And that's, yeah.
1: that, that's you know, universal.
0: Moving, uh, mo- moving towards like uh, the end of our discussion, there is this theory um, that's been put out, I think most notably by Steven Pinker, and that is that the world is actually a much less dangerous place than it, it once was. So like we live in a, I, I, in the book he writes, uh, our, our better angels, that we, we live now in a much safer world. And I think that that's as a result of going through the chaos of World War I, World War II, Like if we had not gone through these like chaotic wars, then perhaps we would not be as peaceful as we are today. So could it be said that each time we engage with the chaos and we become a lot more wiser and knowledgeable, the chaos becomes that much less of a threat?
1: Yes and no. The I would say there's a, I'll put it this way. All you have to do is look at our myths and I think there's a lot of good examples similar to the dragon of chaos in that kid's story. Cause the reality is you can't actually kill the dragon of chaos. Right. But it, it's a good myth of like how you're supposed to live your life. You're supposed to live your life as though you could, but like you can't the dragon of chaos, like a good, another good example is a Medusa or a Hydra. You kick like, let's, let's look at the problems we have solved. We've solved hunger. Right. Great. We solved transportation, We've developed these amazing machines that can tra- make us travel anywhere. But each one of these has a cost. For example, we started to really create automation for farming. We destroyed the agriculture industry. More and more are just being consolidated into these massive farms. They're losing power in like as individual farmers. Or you can take our ability for transportation. Right or the oil, the invention of you know oils and plastics. Like yeah, we solved a lot of problems, but then that gave us a lot of new problems we had never even considered. Now like we might have actually accidentally killed our world.
0: Oh, one totally, totally. Like thinking though from like let's say the example, like some people think we're going to get into let's say a trade war with China, or we already are mm-hmm. in a trade war with China. I would make the, and I think uh, Pinker and myself might say, okay. A trade war is definitely chaotic. All sorts of nutty things are going to happen. However, we at least have the lessons not to engage in a world war or like a nuclear holocaust or something like that, that extreme. So like our previous engagements with chaos, there is still going to be chaos and there's still going to be issues that arise. But through our learning and through our wisdom and, and like our, I guess you would call it historical wisdom, we have better tools and better philosophies to deal with chaos and kind of, it, it makes the process a lot easier to deal with. And maybe it makes that chaos uh, not as extreme as it once was.
1: We'll see. And that's where I would disagree for me. Uh, Cause I think that the individual, I, I, I guess I'm similar to Plato in this sense. I like the individual and society function quite similar because all the, all society is, is a bunch of individuals. If I put you If I put you in a situation where you're just in in some random desert, right? And you have to survive, but you learn through experience how to survive. That's great, right? But eventually, what if I then grab you or like you keep walking and eventually you end up in a jungle? Well, the only experience you can depend on while you're in this jungle is the experience that worked while you were in the desert. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the same problems. That's also how I conceptualize us going through time. Uh, you can think of it as just a giant video game. As we're leveling up, we have the tools to take on all previous challenges. Right, However, exactly. in doing so, those pre- taking on those previous challenges and the solutions that we create, create new challenges which of which we're not prepared to take on.
0: Would you say that like... I, th- I agree with you. And I told, I, I 100% have 2020 vision on that when it comes to the individual, but because we have all of these books and because we have the internet, we have such a, a vast collective memory that there's always like, like usually when people talk about things in the news cycle, there's always something in the past. Like we talk about Corona. Well, someone mentions, Oh, well we had black plague before there's always like some past instance of something happening. And it may be that that new thing is slightly different than that old thing. Mm-hmm. But through through having dealt with Black Plague and the flu uh, pandemic of 1918, it kind of allows us to deal with this chaos in a more orderly way because we have collective wisdom. Right.
1: Yeah. So, so we're always better off with the wisdom, right? The problem that I think is what that I would say, and I think why Pinker for me is a little bit – too optimistic is is the presumption that that's enough the presumption that simply because we've been able to survive this far that we now that the, we have the toolkits that are sufficient to take on anything else and you can imagine like you, all you have to do is imagine any serious apocalypse movie right and like in a serious way like independence day Right, yeah. Right? Like, like, aliens just show up and we're completely outclassed and everything. Okay, what, there's no reason to think that we could actually win that fight. Or a giant meteor or asteroid is coming straight for Earth. There's no reason. We're, like, Armageddon and all that stuff is a fantasy and I mean this literally a fantasy of what a possible solution to a possible threat could be. It's like, but by no means, does that mean we could pull it off? Right. Yeah, so, no, so like, there's
0: no guarantee of any of this. Right. But, but I but, think but that
1: to, to your point, it's just that but past, the more past experiences we've had it, the more likely we would be better off in taking on those giant endeavors. Right. So like, right. I agree. I just, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's not that chaos is dropping it's more that we are becoming more and more capable in the hero- as the heroic figures
0: could we and then we could sort of use a synonym and say that our capability is our like ability to implement order when need be so like we have we have like a pandemic now and yeah there's many things that went wrong and many ways that it was like not handled properly but i think that's we do have like it, it is probably better off if we had just walked into this with like, oh, uh, what's a pandemic? What's a disease? Right. And we knew nothing of vaccinations and we knew nothing about air transmission. Yeah, like, like if, if we-, we didn't have a
1: germ theory and then we just <laughs> went in with like, there's some magic ghost that's killing everybody, right? Like, well, I, I would say, yeah, because like I, I, like I said, it's like it is quite useful to have those previous experiences. I guess for me, my bigger concern would be this under this idea that that's that's going to be enough to survive the troubles that we get into and we're just going to be all right. Like we need to see these things as possibly existential in a real sense, right? Like, And on top of that, I think Pinker tends to perceive one dimension, which is the most reasonable one being like, hey, we're dying less. It's probably a good thing, right? And I'm like, Yes, it is, but also that in and of itself also creates problems.
0: Right. Yeah. And
1: you know, you could do like overpopulation and all that stuff, but also just the existential problem, right? The the problem that we talked about earlier on on the first episode, the nihilistic problem. It's like great, great. We managed to win this game. Okay. Now everyone's starting to ask, well, why are we even bothering to win this game? Now we're starting to ask, like, well, wait, these these motivate these motivating myths and stories that we had told ourselves to justify us going through all this hardship and a lot of us sacrificing and dying and spending our entire lives toiling for, for this cause, doesn't even seem to quite be true in the sense that we had conceptualized it as true. So why, why are we even bothering to do this march?
0: Right. I mean, I, I see it as it adding to our collective storytelling as humans. I, I think that when we look at any catastrophic thing that's happened in human history, Um, it always makes a better story and I guess it makes us feel better as humans and builds up our confidence and our will to live when it's like and then this terrible thing happened and here's how we got past it or Mm -hmm. here's how uh, we conquered it and I, I, I think that that desire get like a level a certain like almost feeling of immortality in a way when we over like it's it's fleeting immortality but we feel invincible for just a fleeting moment of like Yes, we survive that. The human species will continue. And I, I, I'm not delusion. I know full well that we as humans will not be around forever. We're not eternal, but we do get that sense, like in our collective mindset of like, we can do this. We can, we can see tomorrow and we can overcome. And I, I think that's a very positive thing to have.
1: Right. It's, it's the hope in the story. Uh, like Peterson conceptualizes it as the bet that we've made for the best way to survive. And that that's basically the hero, the hero's journey. It's the idea of like the bet that we've made is that because you can think of other animals for like other animals, like animals that are mostly prey animals. Their function is much more anytime you see chaos run, like, like, you know what I mean? Like if you, if there's a lion and you didn't expect to see a lion there run, that is your only option and just pray to God that you're not the slowest one. Right. right. It's like there's no there's no taking on the lion unless it's like some extreme dire circumstance, which is extremely rare. Right. Most of the time, it's run and just hope you're not the slowest.
0: I, I think so, that's our purpose. I think our purpose is as humans, and then this is maybe uniquely, is that we're not we're not we're not mice. Because the thing about the mice is that it can bring chaos. But when the mice when the mouse sees you, it runs away into the darkest hole that it can find. But I think as human beings, we have an intrinsic purpose to confront chaos. like It actually is a part, whether you're male or female, we all have this within us that when chaos presents, we want to preserve our species. And we want to not only preserve our species, we want our species to be extremely prosperous. We don't want to hide in caves and wait for the chaos to leave us alone. We, we, we attack the chaos. And I think that, that excites us. I think it excites right. us as a species and it gives us our, our purpose.
1: Well, yeah. And I think for maps of meaning, like Peterson genuinely believes that that is the true source of meaning in life. The true source of meaning in life is when you encounter something that you that is unknown, but you encounter it within the realm in which you feel as though you are pushing your limits, but are still within your limits. like you're, you're at the edge of your limit. You're not way out beyond your capacity to handle this. But another quick point about what you mentioned about the mice, there's actually, and I may, may want to take what I, what I said back earlier about animals maybe not being, following the hero myth so much, because I do remember uh, this one study of what mice do when they encounter a cat. And so like, you can have this like little, you can imagine a little village of mice all living there. And then you, uh, you just, I mean, you could put an actual cat there, but you can just put just the scent of a cat. And what everyone, what every mouse does, once that happens is they stop, they sprint to their little holes and they start doing ultrasound screams for, you know, quite a long time, just basically letting everyone else know. And it's the same reaction you would likely have if like, you know, Godzilla just out of nowhere appeared in your city, right? Because <laughs> right, that's, that's yeah. the equivalent to what, what they're seeing, right? It's this massive predatory animal. And once uh, after that, they uh, no one will move. Everyone will just slowly peek out, but no one will move. And then it, you can just take the cat out or, you know, let the scent go away. And no one will go out there because now that domain has become unknown again. And eventually what you'll see is, most you know heroic in this terms cat will make a a corner corner run which basically means they run diagonally which is the shortest distance and will just run across and if that that one doesn't die then they'll wait a little bit longer and they're like okay well that corner is safe now we know it's safe because this guy was willing to sacrifice himself and try to see if he could make it and since he did we know that place safe. And then they'll slowly start cutting up the, the domain until they've mapped the entire domain again. So it's like, it's those mice that are willing to risk their lives into the chaos that are the heroes, right? They're willing to put themselves out so that everyone else can know. It's like, actually, it's safe over here. Like whatever was here is not here anymore.
0: I love that. I think that's a great way to end off. If, if we're, for all those of you listening, be the mouse that runs across the kitchen. <laughs> This concludes the fifth episode of the Truth Island podcast. Please stay tuned for our next episode.